I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Second Chance, a podcast that explores the notion of second chance, What is a second chance? Who deserves a second chance? And who decides whether someone is even worthy of a second chance? My name is Raphael Rowe and today my guest is Michaela Booth. To get to where she is today in her life, Michaela is testament to that old saying, never give up. As a child she was neglected by her parents who were drug addicts. In her teens she committed an act of violence that led to her imprisonment. Yet nothing stood in her way of being the best mother she could and just a few years after leaving prison, she attended university and graduated with a first in criminology. Michaela, welcome to the Second Chance podcast. It's it's really nice to have you here. I recently read that you have been nominated for awards, one with the, the Justice Alliance and another prestigious award with the healthcare system that's right right yep both of those shortlisted for um outstanding individual with the criminal justice alliance and for a patient safety award which was based around a submission for a peer support model within prison healthcare delivery you must be very pleased with those nominations Yeah, I'm really pleased. I think recognition for the benefits of peer support is something that is often underlooked and and undervalued. Lots of recognition for large organisations that that utilise lived experience in ways which I would deem that isn't really ethical or helpful. In terms of having projects recognised that are led by someone with lived experience within the system. I think it's a great move. I think it's the way forward. So, yeah, really pleased. It's not all of my own work, so I can't take the credit for all of it. But you get to take the award home. (laughs) Hopefully I get to take the award home. What is it you've actually done to be recognised for these awards? So... The health champion model, which is, uh, which was the submission for both of the awards is a prisoner peer support model where we have a cohort of health champions across various prisons that we deliver the healthcare contract in. And it is all around peer support and health promotion, um, delivered across the prisons by prisoners to their peers. And the criminal justice alliance award? So that one, again, was based around the health champion model, specifically more so as my position as the project lead and being someone with lived experience working within the sector. So, yeah, a little little bit different between the two nominations, but broadly speaking, they're around the delivery of the peer support model within prisons. 
And I also read that you got a first in a criminology degree. Have you recently graduated from a criminology course? Well, I've got my classification and my certificate. Because of COVID, we didn't get to have a graduation. So no, I haven't officially graduated. That is going to be next year. I've just completed my undergraduate degree in criminology and received first class degree with honours. Why criminology? Criminology for me, when I first set out to apply for university, um, which was in 2017, I just had a burning desire to stick two fingers up at the establishment and go on to be a really successful graduate as someone who had been in prison to go and study punishment and crime and justice and really understand for myself how these things are taught, how these things are delivered, what they look like in practice. And, um, the, the the start of the journey really was a vision of me graduating, which I haven't yet, <laughs> with my cap on and just thinking, yeah, you you did good. But I think that vision quickly changed. What propelled my application to go to uni was um, having a couple of job offers offered to me. I, I was in a position at that time where I wanted to change jobs. I, I was in an, in a role where, where I'd been in for about four years. Um, it was a retail job. I had to work every weekend. I'd done that for four years. M- my daughter was slowly growing up and um, I wanted to move jobs a little bit closer to home and find something that didn't involve me working every weekend. Um, and I went through a couple of stages of getting a job offer for um, very low-level jobs, jobs which I was completely qualified for, could have done easily. um, And getting a couple of those jobs offered to me to have them retracted after um, people found out that I had a, a criminal conviction. So for me at that point in time, I didn't want to do the job that I was in. I was really pissed off that I was interviewed and was considered the best candidate for various jobs, had jobs offered, met people in person who interviewed me and liked me, and then didn't even have the decency to tell me on the phone why they had taken a job off me, Um, ignored emails, told me not to contact them. And I just thought at that point in time that I wasn't happy where I was. I couldn't actually believe that I was in a position where I couldn't get a low-level job. And I think since I was released from prison until the moment where that job offer was retracted, I never really thought of the people that I was in prison with and what their needs and experiences were or could have been after their release. And that moment really took me back to thinking about those women who don't have the competence to challenge these things, who don't have the skill or the language to challenge discrimination and oppression and their rights to an active citizenship after their punishment is over. And for me, that that experience very much grounded the rest of my life, the rest of my career and my studies. Um, so it's it's amusing to look back and think how I came into this so naively um, just from being pissed off. Um, and, and what it's kind of led to and, and the direction of my work and thinking now is, is very different to where it started, but it stemmed from a recognition that groups of people are oppressed and discriminated against, often invisibly and often just brushed under the carpet because we don't teach the skills or the competence or even 
the motivation to challenge it because we as a society think that people are individually culpable for their offending, that they deserve punishment and other people have more rights to the labour market, to society, to jobs, to holidays, to travel than people that have got criminal convictions. And for me, I don't think like that. I don't agree with that. And if I have to be the voice to champion and influence change because I can and I will and I want to, then I feel a duty to do that because I've shared experiences with women who won't or can't do that. You went into criminology sticking two fingers up to the establishment because you yourself felt victimised, stigmatised. But as you were studying criminology and started to learn about the, the modules within the discipline, did it change your view? Yeah, I mean... You're definitely right with it being a, a discipline within social sciences. It is very broad. And in terms of the content of study and the teaching, it, it was very broad and it, and it picked up on sociology, psychology, um, victimology. So, so lots of different ologies, uh, with, within the course. Funnily enough, before I ever considered going to university, I had no idea that it was academia that researched and created evidence bases for courses that I had experienced within prison. So uh, offending, offending behavior courses. I had no idea that it was academia that created the evidence base for these courses that evaluated them that monitored them um and really defines and decides if these programs and courses are effective in the delivery of rehabilitation um so when i went into academia i began to realize that it wasn't just prison and punishment and the establishment that was a challenge and that I was pissed off about, I slowly began to realise that actually it was academia as well. And it isn't just society that excludes people who have experienced the criminal justice system. Um, it's academia as well. And much of my second year work and third year work really focused on academia as a system and an institution which is complicit in our oppression and is complicit in stigmatizing us and using discourse which sustains our oppression, um, excludes us from researching but is happy to research us as a group collectively and leave us in the footnotes with thanks to the participants and it, it, what I came to realize quite quickly is research within prisons within criminal justice it's actually us as the research participants which teach the researcher and the academy the things that they don't know we're the teachers because it's our lived experience and from our lived experience, most of the time from our pain and our misery and our suffering, academia creates a knowledge and they create this knowledge and teach this knowledge that leads to job promotions, it leads to publications, it leads to economic capital all the while, the research participants who actually are the creators of this knowledge, who hold this knowledge and teach it and share it, continue to be oppressed. They continue to be voiceless. They continue to be marginalised. And my dissertation was around the value of lived experience leadership within the criminal justice sector, specifically for women. And as part of the ethical approval process for my dissertation, 
I had to anonymize the names of the women who were in my research. Now, my research was about platforming our experiences and platforming our voices and making sure that we can participate in the production of knowledge as a group of women who have successfully navigated punishment and prison and have a huge contribution as leaders within the criminal justice sector. But an ethical process which is governed by powerful people within an academic circle get to decide whose names can be put in a a research article, a dissertation, and the names of women who have been to prison who are research participants can't be named, otherwise I wouldn't get ethical approval. But is that because they wanted to protect the identities by anonymising these individuals, they protected their identities, or is it just the, the process of researching? In their world, it might work differently from you because of your own lived experiences, but with often with these academics, they are so far removed from that lived experience that in order for them to elicit information from the participants, they promise all sorts of things like anonymity. It is a process that is in place to minimise any potential harm to research participants. However, it's also a standard process. So there is no nuance in deciding who needs or wants anonymity. I asked all of the participants in my research Would they like to be named so their contributions to the production of knowledge can be recognised and the success of the final piece can be attributed to the women who formed that piece? And they all said they would like to be named, but I couldn't name them because it was against process. Let me take you on that journey of your lived experience. But before we go to why you ended up in prison yourself and why you have this insight and how you found this voice that I can imagine was very annoying at times in the classroom as you challenged what people believed was the norm. And I see that as a positive. Don't think I'm thinking that as a negative. Who is Michaela? Where where did Michaela grow up? What was your life like as a child, Michaela? So I live in uh, a small city called Worcester. That's also where I went to university. My childhood was far from normal, although throughout my childhood, it was the only childhood I'd ever experienced. So to me, it was normal. I was born into a family of heroin addicts. My school life was turbulent. I was excluded from um, secondary school before I got to sit my GCSEs, uh, permanently excluded. Prior to that, I had experienced various different um, exclusions before it became final. Um, it, it was a very traumatic experience. When I was 16, my dad moved to Spain and went to rehab Um that rehab experience was probably about the seventh or eighth that I had witnessed before I was 16. And thankfully, that was the last time he ever had to go to rehab. And um, it's been about 13 years and, and he is abstinence-based recovery, still goes to NA and AA weekly. My mum, when I was a young child, suffered from various different mental health issues most mostly um as a result of her drug use so as a child I spent much of my time skiving school um and going to various different um drug workers and mental health workers to say that my mum is poorly, she's a risk to herself, she's a risk to her children who were at secondary school, um, so young young teenagers. Is this your brothers and sisters? Do you have... My two sisters, yeah. And you were 16 years old and you were having to go and report your parents to social services or others seeking help? It goes back to um, way before I was 16. I mean, I was 
eight years old when my mum was sent to prison. So as an eight-year-old child, I experienced maternal imprisonment myself. So just in the interest of clarity, at the age of eight, with two siblings who were six and ten, a woman who is known to be a heroin addict who has three young children is sent to prison. Those three kids are left in the family home which has often been raided by the police in search of drugs, which has often been attended by ambulances and the fire service when there have been instances of parents both ODing in the house. These three children were left with no intervention from any single service whatsoever while our mother was serving a sentence of imprisonment for driving without insurance. Um, and we were left with our capable father, who was also a heroin addict at that time. Actually, my mum was in the prison that I went to later on in my life. And when I was in that prison, I walked around it in the first few days and I remembered the the edging of it for all of the times my dad drove us there to throw drugs over the hedge. So in terms of being 16, I mean, these, these horrific stories come in shed loads from me. What was you like then, Michaela? I mean, it's a shocking, I don't know, I say it's a shocking story. You lived it and lots of people go through a similar experience and lots of people don't know there are people like you who've gone through those experiences or they're so far removed from it, they hear it, they read it in newspapers and then they put that in the fire and it burns and they forget about it. But you're living testament to it. What was it like for you? How did you feel and think during this this upbringing? I don't want you to think about what you were like now as the person Michaela is today, but what you was like when you were that age going through those moments. You're right to, to point that out because there is a complete difference. What I feel and think about those experiences as I am today is completely different to how I thought and felt about those experiences as a child. I mean, that was my normal life. To me, I didn't really think too much about what was going on. I mean, when you experience those things from such a young age, like I was born into that. So all of my experiences are around being abused and around being neglected. And this wasn't intentional. Um, but I certainly went through a phase in my teenage years where I felt that this drug addiction was intentional and you're choosing to use drugs over looking after your kids. I mean, as I grew up, probably the end of primary school and going into secondary school, I think I began to notice that my life was far from normal. Um, that it was actually really embarrassing for me at that point in time, that I wasn't forming the relationships with education, that I wasn't forming the relationships with peers that I saw around me. Um, and I think the embarrassment and the shame of my parents really, really impacted me as I went into my teenage years. So I guess that for me turned into a lot of resentment to everybody. It certainly drove me to experimenting a lot with drugs and alcohol myself. And I absolutely hated school. I absolutely hated going to a place where people took the piss out of me every single day. And my only form of protection was to be the person that you will not dare to pick on. And for me, the only way that I thought I would survive that experience was to form a reputation where nobody would pick on me and nobody would pick on my sisters. Because 
what I'd seen for the first 13 and 14 years of my life was nobody cared for me. Nobody looked after me. Nobody had my best interests at heart. There was nobody there to advocate for me. Nobody there to make sure that I got fair access to education. So I think at the age of 14, I felt a very big sense of being alone. I don't hesitate to say it's such a sad story, you know, and anybody listening to it cannot help but feel sorry for you. And and I can't imagine what that is like and what that was like for you, Michaela. But you said your way of of pushing back was to to develop a reputation. How did that evolve? What did that reputation involve? Because there's one thing sort of developing a reputation. There's another thing actually following through on that reputation. What did that reputation mean? You're right. I mean, I got fully excluded from school for fighting when I was 15. And it's a really sad story, actually, and and one that I really couldn't deal with at the age of 15. My dad, who was a heroin addict, all of his friends and associates at that time were heroin addicts. Um, My dad had a house where all of these associates would get together and use drugs. One of the men at my dad's house on one night overdosed and my dad and the rest of the people there took this man to hospital. They left him at the hospital door and drove home. Now, this man died of a drug overdose and unbeknown to me his niece was in my year at school and we didn't know each other until one day I heard her tell a group of her friends that my dad had killed her uncle at school in front of loads of people so The next day I went into school with rumours and rumours and rumours, harassment and abuse that my dad had killed her uncle. So I, I flipped and I beat her up and I got excluded permanently from school, um, because of that. It's a sad story to tell now, like, I feel choked up talking about that experience because it takes me back to how nasty kids can be and how kids don't understand addiction and choice. Can I take a minute? Yeah, sure. Are you okay? Yeah. I really didn't mean to ask you anything that kind of sets us on a path where it evokes past emotions that make you feel uncomfortable, Michaela. Sorry about that. No, it's fine, honestly. It's a horrible story. You've been through quite a journey. I can't imagine, and I suppose there's very few people that can imagine, but it's what qualifies you to do what you do today. It's what has given you that deep inner voice that is coming across very loud and clear. Let's move forward, Michaela, if it's okay with you, to what happened that led to you being sent to prison. The incident that that led me to prison really and and simply was an incident in a nightclub that ended up in in a physical altercation and my victim was seriously injured. The woman who was hurt prior to that night I didn't know her. I was very drunk. She was very drunk. I don't really have too much memory of what even happened. It wasn't a premeditated or a vindictive, malicious planned attack on someone that I had a grievance against. It was simply a night out as a teenage girl with my sisters in the town that I live in that had drastic and life-changing consequences for many of the people involved. And simply that 
is something that could happen to anyone. When you say it's something that could happen to anyone, let me challenge that. Isn't it because of your childhood, because of you, you, you know your need to protect yourself and to look after yourself and your sisters because no one had done that for you? Um, not everybody finds themselves in that same situation. So there was an anger in you from your childhood that led up to this, not necessarily this moment, but it was accumulating, wasn't it? I don't know. I mean, how, how bad was it? I mean, it must have been bad enough for you to end up going to prison. I don't think that I accept your comments that there must have been an anger or a rage in me. Uh, I forget the word that you said because absolutely at the point in time where I was in my life as a 19-year-old when this incident happened, I had moved out of the family home. I had a child. I was a mother. I had an ambition as a as a kid to make sure that when I had a child that I would never live in a council estate where I had lived as a kid. I had moved. I had got an apartment. I had got a job. I had got a child. So my life had already moved on from my childhood at the age of 19. Um, so at that, at that point, I didn't hold resentment or anger. My life was not as far on as it is now, but it was moving along in a direction that I had always fought so hard for it to go into with very little help and support from anybody. So at the age of 19, when this incident happened, I wasn't that 15-year-old girl full of resentment. I was a completely different person. The incident that led me to prison was something that was less than 60 seconds what injured the victim of my offence was the heel of a, a stiletto shoe. The victim had initiated the altercation. I had retaliated and retaliated with greater force. It wasn't planned. I didn't see it coming. I didn't know I was about to be attacked because I was attacked from behind. So my reaction which is what it was, a 60-second reaction was not a display of anger or resentment. It was a display of fear and fight-or-flight mode where I felt that I was in danger. And probably my experiences as a kid being physically abused by my mum on a weekly basis, with weapons, with hoovers, with baseball bats. It did lead to me being someone that doesn't fear abuse or attacks. It led to me being someone who, in my family home, had to build up the strength and resilience to fight back, to be able to be in my home without being seriously hurt. That was the person that I was built to be as a child. So my reactions are a part of my development. They're, they're a result of trauma. They're not a result of anger and, and being aggressive in nature. It's a result of trauma and the development of my brain. Your brain is affected when you experience childhood trauma, neglect and abuse. And for me, it was very much a fight or flight. And all of my life, I have had to fight for every breath that I take, for every meal that I eat, for every bill that I pay to keep a roof over my child's head. So I obviously feel a massive sense of being sorry for for serious harm that I caused a person as the result of what happened, but I've paid the price for it. I have been punished in the name of our justice system for the justice which our system thought was appropriate for the offence that I committed. And that's it for me. I don't deserve or, or nobody else deserves any more from me than what I've already given to repair the harms that I've done. I'm so glad that you not only set me straight, but but paint the real picture because 
the picture that I was building was this victim, you being the victim, who at some point lashed out and called someone else to be the victim. So I'm so glad that you set me straight, because if I sat here and just said, okay, so you ended up going to prison for a violent attack and we left it there, there would be no understanding. And I think it's key that people do understand. And I'm glad that you made it clear that you were on the right path. You were heading in the right direction. You had a child. And that brings me to the next point. When you were convicted of this incident that you're obviously remorseful for and you've put it behind you, how long did you get sent to prison for? And what happened at your at your trial? Did you plead guilty? What was that experience like? I went and experienced uh, a trial. My charge before conviction was a charge of grievous bodily harm with intent. I refute that to this day. I never went out with the intention to cause anybody harm, let alone somebody which was a stranger to me. So I had always admitted that I was the person who caused the injuries to the victim, but I never did that with intent. I always refuted the notion of intent. I still do. So I went to trial because the prosecution didn't offer me an option to plead guilty to a charge of without intent. In actual fact, when I went to trial, I had been charged with two counts of Section 18 because what had happened after the incident was a group of friends of the victim had falsely claimed that after the incident had happened, which did happen, I had then gone on to assault her friend with a glass bottle. So at the point where I went to trial, I was facing two convictions for grievous bodily harm with intent. One of them was completely fictitious and the other one was a consequence of my actions, but I didn't ever go out with the intention to hurt anybody. So thankfully, the completely fictitious accusation of me smashing a bottle over someone's head with the intent to cause them harm was thrown out because it was um, proven that that it was a, a fictitious accusation. The charge that I was convicted for and found guilty of, it, it led to a four-year prison sentence, of which I served two years in prison. I was sentenced on the day that I was found guilty as a mother, as a person that was going to experience her first experience of imprisonment. So if you remember, we began this conversation with me talking about my mum going to prison and there being no safeguarding concerns or no consideration to three children. I was a part of that cycle years later and, and saw that system strike again. I'm big enough to take my punishment and go to prison in the clothes that I was standing up in and nothing else, no toothbrush, no knickers, no bra, just the clothes that I'm stood in. That might annoy me. I might not think it's fair, but as an adult who who committed an offence, if this is what society deems as justice, I will have to accept that and take that on the chin. But is justice a four-year-old girl going and turning up at, someone's house with only the clothes that she has on her back without her toothbrush without her knickers and bras that to me is not justice and that is something which I'd experienced as a kid and my mum had experienced as our mother and that was something that I then went on to experience and who looked after your little girl then during the time you were in prison? What happened to her? She lived between houses. She she was with my mum. She was with her dad. She was with my sisters. Um, she lived between houses for two years. It was obviously a very 
traumatic decision for me to leave my daughter with a woman that had hardly looked after me, that I knew was still taking drugs, that I'd done everything in my power to make sure that my own child didn't ever have to witness any of the shit that I'd witnessed in my life, to be sat in a prison cell and think that you have let her down. You've let a four-year-old girl down because she is sat in that house that you were in and she is sat with that drug addict that, that you were sat with and looked after. And that feeling is the worst feeling that I have ever, ever felt in my life. So as much as society want to deem offenders as harmful, as much as people want to exclude and marginalise the people that are punished through the justice system, the vision that they see these issues and the vision that they see these people is a very blinded vision. And the harm that I have caused an individual through offending is horrible. It's something that I greatly regret and something which I hope that I will never do again. But the worst feeling that I have ever felt is knowing that I have put my own child at risk and in direct harm because I've been sent to prison and she's gone to have to live a life that I had moved her away from. And for me, as a mother, that will always be the worst feeling that I'll ever feel. So. Yes, the the stigma of an ex-offender label has the power to be shameful and to cause a lot of different and difficult feelings to navigate, but they don't come close to the feeling of letting down your child. I hear the torment of leaving your daughter, but there is absolutely nothing you can do now you're behind that cell door in that prison. So how did you cope in prison knowing that there was absolutely nothing you could do to protect, guide, or or even bring up your daughter, but also navigate living among other female prisoners in a female prison and the regime, etc.? It's it's hard to articulate what it feels like to be in prison. I mean, I can't sit here and say that it was horrible all of the time. It wasn't horrible all of the time. I mean, I made friends with people in prison that I'm still friends with seven years later. Part of the prison sentence for me felt like a massive girl's sleepover. We were on a wing, which almost resembled a caravan. We weren't locked in individual cells. We were just locked on the house. We had a kitchen, a living room, showers. I mean, it was all disgusting, but when it's all you've got, it's all you've got and you have to use it. So the facilities and the environment was not nice. It was disgusting. It was somewhere where I never, ever want to see again. But when you've got two years in a place like that, you literally have to get on with it. So I made friends. I got a job after a year and worked out of the prison every day. I guess for me, it was very traumatic. And I don't mean traumatic in a personal sense. For me, directly But it was very traumatic for me to see what prison looks like and what prison does to other people. And I think going into prison and being given a prisoner ID card with a number on and being given your prison grays and working in 
almost like a factory-like delivery every single day. It's easy to get used to because you just have to do it. So, I mean, I got used to it and, and did it every day. But I never let myself be accustomed to being a prisoner. I was always Michaela, not a prisoner. The system and that experience does everything it can to take away your person and make you a prisoner. And that's what I think happens. And I see it happen and saw it happen to loads of women in prison whose stories and traumas aren't mine to come here and talk about in terms of what I've seen and witnessed. But but broadly speaking, the system for women from my own personal experience, it builds prisoners. It doesn't send women to prison to build them into being better citizens. It builds women who enter prison into being prisoners. It was horrific seeing the cycle of justice prevail for what people think is justice. It was horrible to be away from my family and be in a place where you're just absolutely nothing. I get the traumatic personal experience and you've explained that eloquently, but is it as physically dangerous as some programmes in the media like to portray it? No. I mean, probably throughout two years in prison, there was probably two people that I felt personally scared of and that isn't that isn't because I know what their crimes were or because I saw them fighting that's just based on uh, an observation of seeing someone who I think looks scary in terms of violence across women's prisons the 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 prison that I was in um I was there for 2 years and I saw less than 4 physical fights um and they were really like playground slaps did your daughter come to see you in prison and what was that like yeah so my family brought um my daughter to see me every weekend for the first year really until I could um start going out and and going home at the weekends it was horrible to have her visit a prison but I I don't really think I had a choice. You didn't, no, and and she was so little and so young. So just so that I got this factually correct, you were involved in this incident when you were 19 and you were convicted when you were 21. Is that right? Yeah. And so you went to prison for two of the four years. So you came out when you was 23. And that was a big moment because although you were spending the year in and out working, you know, in, in society... This was the moment, I suppose, where you got to rebuild your life with with your little girl. Were you able to to rebuild your relationship with your little girl? Yeah. I was released in November 2013. So I, I had a job to go out to. I had a house to go out to. The house wasn't ready until March. So from November to March, my daughter still lived with my mum and I lived with my dad. So we were still split up for six months. Um, and I was at work every day. So we had to build the initial relationship, not straight away with, with her coming home, which was horrible, but I think very sensible at the time. She doesn't really remember too much about the period of time where she lived at Nanny's. She doesn't really talk to me about being in prison she knows I was in prison and and she knows that it's formed the direction of the rest of my life but in terms of experiencing the things that I experienced she doesn't and will never see me overdosed with a syringe in my arm and about round my arm she'll never be starving and, and rely on family donations of food every week. She'll never live in a house where she's got no heating and got no electric. And she'll never live with a mother that 
neglects and abuses her. What does a second chance mean to you? Well, I was thinking about this yesterday and... And to me, a second chance within the common narratives and discourse of criminal justice is letting someone back in and letting someone have another chance. Most people in prison have never had a chance. Most people never started out in their life with a chance. So I think... What we need to do is reflect as a collective and actually begin to examine whether our justice system that inflicts mass harm on people needs a revisit so we can define if we need to give our justice system a second chance to deliver effective justice, effective justice for the people who are being punished and effective justice for the victims of crime because it isn't effective for victims of crime for people to come out of prison in worse states than they went in with who need to offend to survive, to actually live. People leave prison and offend to actually live and to endorse that we should give them a second chance without critically examining what that symbolises in our criminal justice system is something that I am not prepared to do as someone who works in that system. Well done, Michaela. I mean, you, you, you have a powerful voice and I'm glad that you're in this space and you're using your lived experience to 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 project that voice. And and the only thing left for me to say is I hope you win the Justice Alliance, the Criminal Justice Alliance Award. Because if you don't, you won't get a second chance. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much, Michaela. It's been very powerful. I thank you for sharing your story. If you've listened to this episode on any of the podcast players that allows you to rate and review, please rate and review. And please subscribe to be notified when new episodes are posted. This podcast was produced by Your Vision Media Limited, original music by J Row Productions, design work by Studio Minerva, and myself, Raphael Rowe. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.